take God's Word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 8. We're studying Matthew chapter 8 and 9 as a unit in a message series that I've entitled Bringing the Kingdom to the Broken. The reason our world is broken is because the people who live in it are broken. And the reason why we're broken is because sin has severed our relationship with God and it's wreaking havoc on our relationships with each other. I look around the world and see the same things that you've seen on television. But clearly, sin is the cause of suffering, of sorrow, of conflict and chaos and disease and, yes, the wars in Ukraine and in the Middle East. And Jesus came to change all that. He came to bring peace. In fact, we're told to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And in Matthew chapter 8 and 9, we come upon the activity of Jesus, demonstrating not only his authority to announce that he's going to bring change to the world and peace through himself, but also that he has the power to bring it about. And so in Matthew 8 and 9, when you read those two chapters together, we study them together as a unit because in those two chapters, we see ten miracles of Jesus that give evidence of his power to bring about the change that he wants to bring about in our lives and in our world. He's able. He can do it. But it's not all just miracles in these two chapters. In Matthew 8 and 9 interspersed with these ten miracles, we have four dialogues that take place between Jesus and various groups of people. And this morning we're going to look at one of those four dialogues. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 18 through 23, we're presented with the first of these four dialogues. And in our text this morning, Jesus' dialogue with two would-be disciples demands that we evaluate our own lives in light of the high cost of following Jesus. And I want you to follow along with me in God's Word this morning as I begin the reading in His Word at verse 18 of Matthew chapter 8. When Jesus saw a large crowd around Him, He gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. A scribe approached Him and said, Teacher, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests. But the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Lord, another of his disciples said, First, let me go and bury my father. But Jesus told him, Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. This is God's Word. It's for us. 
It is true. It's relevant. It's a word we need to hear today from him. You know, it's football time in Tennessee. Funny how Sunday morning brings smiles one week and sadness others. Who knows what some of the people in this room will be feeling next week. I don't know if you know this or not, but my son and daughter are both graduates of the University of Tennessee. They're volunteers. and uh, My daughter is married to another graduate of the University of Tennessee. My son... is married to one from the University of Alabama. <laughs> Last year, he, we said to Jackie, Jackie, now you know what it feels like. And she said, well, not really. I don't feel this way very often. <laughs> she, she had a point there. Well, let's just say this morning it's football time in Tennessee and you're a Titans fan. And uh, I find out you're a Titans fan. I say, I'm a Titans fan too. What did you think about the game last week? And uh, they say, I, I didn't see last week's game. Well, well okay, well, what would you think about the, week, the game the week before? Well, I didn't watch that game either. Well, then, what do you think about how the team's doing overall this year? Well, I don't know. I haven't watched any of the games. What do you think about our quarterback situation? What? We have a quarterback situation? I thought you were a Titans fan. Oh, I am. I'm a great fan of the Titans. I follow the Titans all the time. They're my team. Now let me ask you this question. Suppose you were to say, I'm a follower of Jesus. If somebody says they're a follower of the Titans, wouldn't you expect something more from a fan of the Titans? And if someone says, I'm a follower of Jesus, wouldn't you expect something more from someone who says, I'm a follower of Christ? Now, today's passage is about the high cost of following Christ. Salvation is a free gift, but it's costly to live out. In sharing the gospel with others, sure, we want to tell them about the love of God in Jesus Christ. How he left his home in heaven and came to us paid a price on the cross for us that we might be set free from our sins. There is that side of becoming a follower of Jesus Christ, but folks, we also must talk about the cost of following Jesus. I want to say from the bottom of my heart this morning, I want you to follow Jesus. Jesus wants you to follow him. But I want to warn you against following Jesus. And the reason why I want to warn you from following Jesus is because if you say yes to Jesus, it's going to cost you everything. Now, we don't talk about that a lot. 
We talk a lot about salvation. We talk a lot about forgiveness in Christ. And we need that. But we've also got to talk about discipleship. Discipleship is following Jesus. And there's a cost to following Jesus. And it's a high cost. And in our text this morning, we see that there's the high cost of following Christ's commands. Look again at verse 18, and notice there in verse 18 that the Scripture says, when Jesus saw a large crowd around him, he gave the order to go to the other side of the sea. I don't know if you realize this or not, but Jesus is the type of person who gives orders. The phrase translated, gave the order, comes from a word, it derives from a word that literally means to state with force or authority what others must do. Jesus has got that kind of authority. And so a part of following Christ is following his commands. And discipleship, according to the scripture, is defined as doing what Jesus tells us to do. Notice that it says Jesus gave the order. Now, practically speaking, a disciple is defined as one who does what Jesus tells them to do. And one of the last things Jesus told his disciples to do was to go and make more disciples. And in Matthew 28, 19, and 20, we have that passage, or 18 through 20, we have this passage that says to us, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I've commanded you. So what do we have in Matthew chapter 8, verse 18? Jesus gave the order. What does it say in Matthew chapter 28? It says Jesus has the authority to give orders. It says to us he has all authority, that he gives commands. And when Jesus says to us, I want you to go and make disciples, he's not saying, hey, I want you to do all the church things you can do. And hey, by the way, if you get around to it, I want you to make a disciple every now and again. Now, don't go out of your way. Don't get too busy. Don't worry about that. When Jesus says go and make disciples, this is not a request. It's a command. And I think sometimes we just kind of teach it, uh, teach it and we kind of experience it as a program that we do at church. Being a disciple is not a program, it's being a person. It's a lifestyle. It's not something you go and do, it's something that you are. Now most of us don't like someone telling us what to do. Am I right about it? But the Bible tells us Jesus has all authority. The Bible tells us Jesus gives commands and he has the right to tell us what to do with our lives and what not to do. And part of the cost of following Jesus is following his commands. That's doing what he tells us to do. But discipleship is also defined in the scripture as going where Jesus tells us to go. Did you notice also there in the 18th verse that Jesus says, I want you to go. That's the command. And then he tells us where he wants us to go. I want you to go to the other side 
of the sea. Do you see the parallel there with the Great Commission? Likewise, the Great Commission begins with what? It begins with the word go. <laughs> it's that command that is given. And his commands also apply to our life actions. In other words, Jesus gets all up into our business and he says, this is who I want you to date and this is who I don't want you to date. Jesus gets all up in our grill and Jesus gets into our lives personally, and when he gets into our personal lives, he says, this is the job I want you to take. This is the career that I want you to take. This is where I want you to live. And Christ has the authority not only to tell us what to do, but where to go. And that's exactly what he does here in Matthew chapter 8. Now, the crowds that are there with Jesus, and remember, there are many of them there, many people, a multitude of people are there with Jesus in Matthew chapter 8. And many of them are more interested in what Jesus can do for them than they are with what Jesus requires of them. And they're ready to sign up, but they don't really know what's required of somebody who signs up. Now, this is a crowd. And Jesus is not just looking for a crowd. He's not looking for a crowd that will follow him from place to place. He's looking for disciples who will follow his commands. Who will do what he says to do and go where he says to go. And so Jesus gives this order, and the order is, go to the other side of the sea. You know, Jesus is always doing that. Jesus is always saying, I want you to go to the other side. I want you to take my side instead of the world's side. I want you to side with me and walk by my side where I go. I'm going to the other side. I want you to go with me. I want you to be at my side. Now, people oftentimes speak about being on the right or wrong side of history. Let me tell you what's important this morning. It's being on the right side of Jesus. So let me ask you this question. Whose side are you on? Now, be careful, because we'd assume we're here at church. Hey, by the way, it was cloudy. It was a little bit cooler this morning. I could have stayed at home. Let me ask you, whose side are you on this morning? Be careful before you answer, because it all depends on how you respond to Jesus and what he's telling you to do and what he's where he's telling you to go. Do you do what Jesus tells you to do, and do you go where Jesus tells you to go? That's how you know whether you're on his side or not. It's not just showing up and saying, well, I'm here. What else does he want from me? A lot. There's a high cost to following Jesus. <clears throat> but there's also the high cost to putting Christ first. Verses 19 through 22, we notice that immediately following this order that Jesus gives to cross over to the other side, he enters into a dialogue with two would-be disciples, two different people. 
The first one impulsively, kind of rather quickly, kind of rather boldly tells Jesus, I'm going to follow you wherever you go. And the second one wants to follow Jesus, but he, he tells him, I need to take care of some personal business before I follow you. And the first one also seems rather eager to follow Jesus. And then when you look at the second one, he seems kind of hesitant, kind of reluctant. And yet they both have something in common with one another. Each of them has an obstacle to following Christ. And at first glance, it appears that they have two different problems. But their problems are really one and the same. And the problem is neither one of them is willing to put Christ first. And if you're going to follow Christ, you have to put him first. And from Jesus' dialogue with the first would-be disciple, we learn that we must put Christ before personal comfort. Look at verses 19 and 20 again with me, and it says this, A scribe approached him and said, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus told him, Foxes have dens and birds of the sky have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And i got to tell you, there's a lot to like about this first disciple. A whole lot to like about this first disciple. It tells us that he's a scribe. That means this is somebody that uh, doesn't just casually read the Bible. This is somebody who has spent time memorizing the Bible. This guy knows the Bible backwards and forwards, the Old Testament scriptures. He spent a lot of time studying God's Word and Beyond that, as a scribe in Israel, he's somebody who's highly regarded among other people. <clears throat> he's well-respected by people in the community. And he approaches Jesus respectfully. Notice that he calls him teacher. And he approaches Jesus willingly. He says, I'll follow you. Uh, I've been... Uh, I like, to, I like to read. And one of the books, my most recent reads, is a book by Christy McClellan. And the title of the book is Rediscovering Israel. And I'd, I'd like to say that uh, at least what I'm going to share with you this morning was something new, but it was actually some, not something new that I learned, but something rather that she confirmed that I've been learning over time as I've been reading and as I've been studying. And as I told you several messages ago, that <clears throat> initially, in the first century world, uh, what would happen is you would have a situation where uh, a person would approach a rabbi and they would say, I want to follow you. And so what you would have is you would have the lesser approaching the greater, requesting to follow them, and if that rabbi agreed to it, then you would follow him. And then over a period of time, there would, there would be a testing period in your life. And you'd either make it or you wouldn't make it. And they would either agree for you to continue on or they would tell you to go home. And by the way, most people didn't make it. Most of them didn't make the cut. And I remember uh, what, what stood out to me in, in uh, McClellan's book that I wanted to share with you this morning is that she made this comment 
that once you had committed yourself to following the rabbi and that rabbi had said, I want you to follow me, then you were baptized in the name of your rabbi. And you were yoked to your rabbi. Now that word yoke is a very vivid picture. Uh, in ministry at church, in service ministry, we, sometimes we have deacon ministry and we have what's called yoke fellow ministry. Yoke fellow ministry is when you have somebody who has all the qualifications of a deacon. Meets all of those qualifications, but they're not considered a deacon. And so in a yoke fellow program, what happens is the yoke fellow is yoked to a deacon, an older, more experienced person who has been following the Lord for a while. It's kind of like being in a training program. And so you would be yoked to your rabbi and remember how this all started? The lesser came to the greater. But do you see there's something very different about Jesus' ministry? In Jesus' ministry, it's not the lesser who comes to the greater, it's the greater who comes to the lesser. The greater invites the lesser to follow, not the other way around. And by the way, did you notice, you, you may have thought that, you know, these words of Jesus that are out there in the Great Commission, that, you know, this is just kind of unique to Jesus. Do you see the correlation? When you committed yourself to follow a rabbi, you were baptized in your rabbi's name. And so what does Jesus say? Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in my name see where that comes from this is not something new this was something that existed and jesus gave it a new meaning he said now go and make disciples disciples a follower of christ baptize them in my name so that they become look at this yoked to me yoked to me they're going to learn from me. Now I think the key word in Jesus' encounter with this first would-be disciple is the word wherever. <clears throat> I'll follow you wherever you go. Wherever you go, Jesus, I'll follow you. Well, Jesus seizes on that statement by him. And Jesus follows up. And I want you to notice what happens here. You would think if somebody comes up and volunteers and said, I'll follow you, Jesus, wherever you go, you'd think everybody'd stand up and clap, right? But instead, what does Jesus do? Jesus discourages him. Jesus doesn't applaud him. Jesus tells him, no, you're not ready. You can't do it. Because Jesus knows he's going to the cross. Now, Jesus doesn't mention the cross here. It's not anywhere in our text that he said anything about the cross at this point in his ministry. Instead, what does he do? He points to his homelessness. He points to his wanderings. He says the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. And he's striking at the very heart of this man's problem. And the very heart of this man's problem is this man loves personal comfort. This man likes the respectful greetings in the marketplace. This man likes his standing within the community. 
Jesus doesn't mention the cross here. But he knows that if you're not willing to forego your personal comfort, then you're not going to the cross with me. Jesus had no permanent address. His mail was constantly having to be forwarded. And why is that? Because he had no permanent residence. He was constantly on the move. And this man followed the, uh, pledged himself to follow Jesus, but he did so without first counting the cost. And the cost was personal comfort. Now in verse 20, Jesus says this. In his reply, he says, The Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Now, it's not accidental that Jesus uses this phrase, Son of Man. Uh, In the Bible, Jesus' favorite self-designator is Son of Man. Did you know that? I mean, 89 times in the New Testament, Jesus refers to himself as Son of Man. Do you know those words, Son of Man, are never found on the lips of anyone else? Only Jesus. And Jesus' favorite self-designator of himself is the Son of Man has come. Now, this is a throwback for us because he's referring to a scriptural prophecy back in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, where we read these words in Daniel 7. Daniel has a vision, and in his vision he says, I continued watching the night visions, and suddenly one like a son of man was coming with the clouds of heaven. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom so that those of every people, nation, and language should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will not be destroyed. Now remember, we're studying a portion of Scripture that's about the authority of Jesus. And here in Daniel chapter 7, the Son of Man is a divine figure who receives all authority and all glory and sovereign power, who is worshipped by the nations and whose kingdom will never be destroyed. So in his dialogue with Jesus, Jesus uses this phrase, Son of Man. And rather obviously, when he uses this word, Son of Man, he's referring to the fact that he is fully human. But when he quotes from Daniel chapter 7, he's also saying that he's fully God. Sometimes it seems to me that we want all the rewards of discipleship with none of the duties. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way in any endeavor. It doesn't work that way in music. It doesn't work that way in athletics. It doesn't work that way in education. It doesn't work that way in business. There is always a cost, whatever you do. And Jesus' reply gets right at this man's motives. It's as if Jesus is asking him, do you want to follow me, really? Is it the miracles? Is it the healings? Are you expecting a life of ease and applause and adulation? 
If we're going to follow Jesus, we have to put him first. That means putting Christ before personal comfort. And it's pretty easy to know and recognize that Jesus wasn't thinking of personal comfort when he came into this world to die on the cross for us. It wasn't comfortable. And the question comes to us, will we put him before our personal comfort? But there's a second conversation. And in the second conversation, we see that we must put Christ before personal relationships. Verses 21 and 22, we read these words in this second dialogue with the would-be disciple. He says, Lord, another of his disciples said, first, let me go bury my father. But Jesus told him, follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. So what do we have here? We've got a second disciple on the scene, and he's a would-be disciple of Jesus. But he's not like the first would-be disciple in several ways. I mean, they're different in many different ways. We see it in the text. Unlike the scribe, this man is actually called a disciple. Now, in the Bible, the word disciple is used in various degrees and in its context applied to people in different ways. But what the Word tells us is that at least initially, this man had already started to follow Jesus. Now there's a second difference between him and the first would-be disciple, and the second difference is that unlike the scribe, this man addresses Jesus as Lord rather than teacher. And a third difference is that unlike the scribe, he seems to be willing to leave home and family for Jesus, but here's the problem. He wanted to follow later, not now. Ray Fowler observes that if the first man was too quick to follow Jesus, the second man was too slow to follow Jesus. Now, this man's problem is highlighted by the word first. Lord, first let me go and bury my father. He put something other than Jesus as first in his life. Now, on the surface, it seems like a reasonable request. I mean, really? No duty was more important to a Jew than the obligation to care for one's parents and to see that they had a proper burial. And to have a proper burial, of course, it would have involved making funeral arrangements and the actual burial and then additional time for mourning and then time to settle their father's affairs. And taking care of these types of matters took precedence over reciting your daily prayers and other important religious duties in Judaism. Even a priest was allowed to become ceremonially unclean to bury their father, their mother, their brother, their sister, their son, or their daughter. 
But this passage likely is describing a follower whose father was still alive. And this man wanted to go home and to wait for his aged father to lie, and then he would follow Christ. I mean, again, if this is the case, this seems to be a reasonable request. But Jesus' reply to him is shocking. Follow me and let the dead bury their own dead. Now that seems harsh to modern readers. Because we know that today's funerals and today's memorial services and those types of things, as involved as you will be with those, those do not take a long period of time. They will require some attention and some time, but it's not long and protruded. It's not prolonged over a period of time. And yet ancient Jewish burials took over a year. And that's because the Jews did not embalm the dead. This is why in Judaism, the person is buried the same day they die. Unlike the Egyptians, they didn't embalm the bodies. And what would happen is you would quickly lay the body in a tomb, and one year later, you would return to the tomb, you would gather up the bones, and you would place the bones in an ossuary. And it would be in that tomb that the person would rest, their remains would rest. And the man has said, Lord, first, let me go and bury my father. Friends, there's a disconnect whenever you and I say, Lord, first. Jesus' commands, you see, come first. And what has Jesus done? Jesus has already given the command, let's go to the other side. That's the command. And this man says, Lord, but first. Christ comes first even before personal or family relationships. And those who come to faith in Christ in the Islamic country know this all too well. Because when you come to follow Christ, if you are from the nation of Islam, if you are a Muslim, then what happens is, is once you make the decision to follow Jesus, the Koran actually tells a father that they are to kill you. At the very least, to disown you. It is treat you as if you are dead. So what Jesus says to this would-be disciple, he says to us, I want you to follow me, but I want you to follow me on my terms, not your terms. N.T. Wright explains it like this. What Jesus was doing was so important, it was so urgent, it was so immediate, that it was the one thing that mattered. 
And what Jesus is saying to this man is, whatever you were thinking of doing first, this, this comes first. Do this. And so that's the second cost of following Jesus. It's the cost of putting Christ first. You know the best time to follow Jesus? The present time. Now we didn't read Matthew chapter 8 verse 23 earlier, but I want to read it now and I want you to look at it with me. Go to the Word and look at Matthew 8, 23, and notice what that verse says. We didn't read it earlier. It says that as he, that is, as Jesus got into the boat, look at this, his disciples followed him. The moment of truth arrived. Now back in verse 18, what did Jesus do? He gave an order. What was the order? Let's go to the other side of the sea. And now finally Jesus gets into the boat. It's the moment of truth. And his disciples get in the boat. You know, the different gospel writers, they don't give contrasting views of similar stories. They give expanded views. Mark, the gospel writer, gets his primary source material. His primary source for his material is Peter the Apostle. So Peter's an eyewitness. And in Mark, when he writes about this event, he says in Mark 4.36, he tells us that others followed, other disciples followed with him in other boats. So the twelve are in a boat with Jesus, and they go on the sea, they cross over the sea together. But there were other boats with other disciples who were following along. Now, I don't think it takes a lot for us to figure out that actions speak louder than words. Remember being a Titans fan? Remember when you came in this morning assuming that you were a disciple of Jesus? Because, by the way, isn't he lucky to have you on his side? You know, the way you tell a true disciple is by their actions, not their words. Anyone can say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. But the Bible tells us that those who did not get in the boat and cross over to the other side were not disciples no matter how much they claimed to be. Part of being a disciple is following through on our commitment to Christ. When the moment of truth arrives, what will you do? And following Jesus is serious business. There are costs to following Jesus. 
You must be willing to follow Christ's commands. You must be willing to put Christ first in your life. And then you must be willing to follow through on your commitment. It's not enough just to say the words. You must count the cost. But now here's the really good part. It's more than worth it. It's more than worth it to follow Jesus. Because anything you leave behind to follow Jesus will be replaced by something that's better than what you left behind. But let me tell you this. If you lose Jesus, you lose everything. And if you gain Jesus, then you will need nothing else. You know, the question is often raised on this passage of Scripture, what became of these two would-be disciples? It's an interesting question. I mean, did they eventually become followers of Jesus? We don't know. We're not told. We don't know the end of their story. But you can know the end of your story. What will history write when it writes the end to your story? Let's stand together for prayer. Jesus, we come to you as the Prince of Peace. The Prince of Peace who is the only peace that we can know this side of eternity. And you tell us to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. And so, Lord, we look forward to your return because we know that without you there can be no peace. And even as we've watched the interviews on television, Father, it's uh, heartbreaking. And we enter into the pain of those who have lost so much. And we're not there, and we can't fully enter into it. And what really hurts is when I listen to people expressing their grief when they make no mention of God or no mention of peace or no mention of any additional help. They're just kind of trapped in their own suffering and sorrow. Now, Jesus, we know that there's nothing that's ever going to happen in this world that's going to remove the sickness, the disease, the death, the wars, the conflict. But we also understand that we will never know peace in our own lives until we make peace with you. 
And so today, I want to invite you to make your peace with God through Christ. Today, would you say, Jesus, I want to follow you. And Jesus knows what's in your heart. And so you understand ahead of time that when Jesus invites you to follow him, this is what he's saying. Remember before when a person would come to the rabbi and they would ask? They'd commit, I'm going to follow you. Jesus would call and he would say, I want you to follow me. Do you understand that when Jesus says that, what he's saying is, you can do this. I'm not going to turn you away. You can do this. I invite you to follow me. And I want to invite you today to follow Jesus as your Savior and your Lord. I want to invite you today to, as I have done and even as I am doing now, to evaluate discipleship. There's a high cost to being a disciple of Jesus. Lord, thank you for hearing our prayer and knowing our hearts. This morning I pray for that That husband, that father, wife, mother, grandmother, grandfather. Father, it's never too late to be on the right side of Jesus. And I pray today that whatever the need is here this morning, whether it be a a student or a child, today is your day to follow Jesus. And we're going to respond to Jesus now with a time of singing. And I'm going to invite you to come forward. And Andy's going to be waiting here at the front. And if you want to follow Jesus, or maybe today your decision would be you want to follow through on baptism, maybe you would just come down forward and you would just share that with us now. We'd like to pray with you and tell you about how you take your next steps in following Jesus. But this altar is open. And last week we saw many coming to the altar And that was not just a one-time shot. We want God to do something amazing in our lives and amazing in our church. If we really want it, then we've got to ask for it. Would you come in brokenness and just kneel here at the altar and cry out to God? Considering the message this morning and applying it to your own life. As we bow together in prayer and you respond to him, let's sing together.